Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today we're sharing an old West legend, the legend of the Lost Sublet Mine, lost somewhere in the Guadalupe Mountains in Texas. Many of you fans know from some of our previous stories, like the Lost Dutchman Mine, and others, that stories of the Old West carry a certain intrigue for me, mostly thanks to my dad, who grew up in the shadow of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains near Cimarron, New Mexico, and definitely enjoyed telling stories. It was hard to tell who enjoyed them more, him or me, but he left me with a love for the Old West and the idea that carrying on the tradition of telling stories might be a good thing. I'll tell you the story pretty much the way my dad told it to me and add my own research. First, it helps if you picture the area we're talking about in your mind. The Guadalupe Mountains, in Spanish, the Sierra Guadalupes, take in a chunk of West Texas and Southeast New Mexico and contain a number of peaks, the most famous being Guadalupe Peak, the highest at 8,751 feet, and El Capitan Peak at 8,085 feet. If you're lucky enough to be traveling Highway 62-180 through the Chihuahuan Desert, you'll pass El Capitan, and it's an awesome sight to behold. There's an oasis in this desert area called Pine Springs, and there's a visitor center there from which you can venture out and explore to your heart's content. This area, which contains natural springs and vegetation, was a haven for the Apaches, who were constantly being pushed southward by their one-time enemies, the Comanches and it was the Apaches who learned desert survival and made war against the white man and everybody else well into the late 1800s. They were also very unfriendly to most prospectors, who constantly had to keep one eye open for them in order to keep their scalps. The Guadalupes cover a wide range, and much of it is wild, with bighorn sheep, mountain lions, and rugged, mostly waterless terrain. If you're camping, you need to know what you're doing. If you're prospecting, you're probably doing so illegally as it's mostly state or federal land. Stories of gold have come out of the Guadalupes for centuries, although the geologists will tell you flat out that these mountains aren't set up to be gold producers. You might remember we mentioned the New Mexico governor Lou Wallace in our story about Billy the Kid, and Wallace was a gold seeker as well as being a successful author. You might remember he wrote a story called Ben-Hur that became a movie 75 years later. Well, Wallace came across an old Mexican document that was found in the palace basement in Old Santa Fe, describing how an old converted Indian led Spanish Captain de Gavilan and 30 men to an incredibly rich gold deposit on an eastern spur of the Guadalupes. The Spanish named the place Sierra de Cenizas, Ashes Mountain, and they loaded up any number of pack trains with nuggets and ore, but that mine was lost after 1680 when the local Pueblo Indians rose up and killed every Spaniard who couldn't get out in time. No one has ever rediscovered Sierra de Cenizas or the gold, unless it was old Ben Sublet. The famous Apache chief Geronimo once mentioned in his book, and yes, he wrote his autobiography in later life, probably after going to work for Bill Cody with his Wild West show, that the richest gold mine in the Western world lay in the Guadalupes. Geronimo traveled the world with Cody's show, and he was the third biggest draw for the show after Cody and after Annie Oakley, whom Geronimo nicknamed Little Sure Shot. We're working on a story about her that I believe you'll enjoy. She was a force to be reckoned with. William C. Ben Sublet was just one of a thousand stories of men who came west to hunt for gold. But unlike most of them, Sublet found it. Rich ore and huge quantities of it. And he found it somewhere in the Guadalupes. Sublet was born in Tennessee and grew up in Alabama. 
and like many from that area, he was listening when the West was calling. He first moved to Texas after the winter of 1857 and served as a Texas Ranger in Captain Edward Burleson's company from January 20th till September 9, 1860. After 18 months chasing Indians on the frontier, he returned to the settled part of Texas to find the nation torn by civil war. So he did what most men were doing in that area at that time. He joined a regiment, Gordon's Regiment, 1st Arkansas Cavalry, Confederate States of America, on August 4, 1862. And he was cited for gallantry in the Battle of Fayetteville, April 18, 1863. After the war, he married Laura Louisa Denny, and they moved to St. Louis, Missouri. But the West was still calling him, and he returned to Texas by July of 1870 and took up residence in Bowie County, where he farmed intermittently for the next four years. It was a hard, hard life for his wife. She died in 1873, leaving their three children in his care, two young daughters and an infant son. After late 1874, he moved them to West Texas and took up buffalo hunting, becoming an advanced water scout and supplier of game meat for the Texas and Pacific Railway, which was pushing westward from Fort Worth, and this job paid pretty well. Notice I mentioned water scout. Sublet was an expert dowser and often earned money finding locations for wells for homesteaders and ranchers. In early 1881, while operating from the temporary railhead at Colorado, which later became Colorado City, he discovered gold dust and nuggets somewhere in the Pecos River country at a site he contended was a mine, but he would not divulge the location until later to just a few select friends. The story of Ben Sublet's lost mine is usually connected with the Guadalupe mountain range, but in truth, the Pecos River contains all the history and legend of that area, and it's likely that the mine or catch that Sublet found was located not far from that river. Not that that narrows it down for you. The Pecos is a major tributary of the Rio Grande. It starts in New Mexico north of Albuquerque and runs over 920 miles southward along the eastern slopes of the mountains that make up the Guadalupe Range. The Pecos River was the route Spanish explorers took and became a part of American folklore as a dividing line between civilization and rugged country. Judge Roy Bean came from that area, and one of his famous quotes was, I am the law west of the Pecos. West of the Pecos was hell on wheels, and you didn't venture there unprepared. It had and has a rugged beauty with waterfalls, high mountain meadows, huge sharp peaks, and deep canyons. And it was and is an adventure to behold. But it's also a place where Apaches, thieves, and rattlesnakes were all competing for your horse, your rifle, your gear, and your life. The earliest known settlers there were the Pecos Pueblo Indians. The same ones who rose up against the Spanish, who were using them as slaves to mine gold. And they wiped them out. Coronado, Espedo, and Gaspar Castano de Sosa, and others, all had their fill of those Indians. By the 1880s, the Middle and Lower Pecos became the route for cattle drives. The earliest Anglo settlement was the town of Pecos, founded in 1881, when the Texas and Pacific Railway, which Sublet worked for, crossed West Texas. He lived briefly in Granbury in the early 1880s before becoming one of the three men that settled Monahans in 1883. By 1887, he had moved to Odessa, where he assumed two Ector County homesteads in the next two years. He sold one and fulfilled occupancy requirements for a patent on the other. I looked it up. One of them still listed as a Texas historic site, 222 North Grandview, 
in Odessa. It was a 160-acre home site on which he built a dugout and tent home for his three kids, and he hauled wood and water and witched for local ranchers for food and necessities. Odessa, Texas was a little bigger and provided more opportunity than Monahan's. In other words, it had a school. By then, his eldest daughter was doing wash for townspeople and caring for her sister and brother, so how much time they had for schooling is unknown. Ben was shabby and decrepit-looking, with a wild tussle of hair and full beard, and most people in Odessa figured him to be more than a little crazy. They thought he was crazy for a couple of reasons, one of which was that he hung around a lot in bars. And number two, he took week-long trips into the mountains, as a prospector, saying that one day he was going to come back loaded with gold. Of course, promises don't feed kids, and the townspeople had to join together to take care of his kids when he was gone. We'll return to our story right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our story. One legend says that an old Apache took a liking to him and led him to a catch of gold, from which he was able to return and buy decent clothes for his kids. The Guadalupes were 170 miles west of Odessa, and that was a long ride through Apache country, about a five-day ride, which really was reason three of why they thought old Ben was crazy. He started making repeat trips, and each time he would come back after a few days or weeks' absence with a pouch full of nuggets, whereupon he would buy drinks for the whole town in the Molly Williams Saloon. There were dozens of eyewitnesses to the fact that he always seemed to have gold, and that the nuggets were so pure you could hammer them down into jewelry on the spot. Although old Ben seemed crazy and was certainly over-generous and even boisterous about his findings, he stayed tight-lipped for a long while, and those who tried to follow him couldn't track him for long. Somewhere out in the foothills, Ben ran into another prospector called Grizzly Bill, and the two shared campfire together, swapped yarns, and became close friends. At one point, old Ben shared the location of his mine with Grizzly Bill and told him to take whatever he needed. Grizzly found the mine, and the gold, and upon returning to his hometown of Pecos, entered a tavern and showed everyone his newfound wealth. He bought rounds of drinks late into the night, until someone challenged him to a bronc-riding contest. He accepted, got on the bronc drunk, was bucked, and fell headfirst, breaking his neck. It kind of sounds like that was all a setup. Of course, no one knows what happened to Grizzly's gold, but you can guess, and you'd probably be right. Meanwhile, old Ben's generosity was knowing no bounds. He befriended a man named Mike Wilson, gave him the location to the find, and Wilson found it loading up his saddlebags with the precious ore. Wilson decided to party it up too, and did so for three days, after which he returned for more gold, but this time he couldn't find the location. And we've been sketchy about saying whether this was a mine, a cave, or a canyon floor, because that part isn't known exactly. Let's assume for a second that Sublet found a canyon where early Spanish prospectors had been attacked by Apaches, and maybe some pack mules went down with bags of nuggets. Maybe it was a whole mule train but the gold still had to have come from a mine. So whether or not Sublet found the mine or picked it up off the canyon floor doesn't really matter, but it's been called Sublet's lost mine ever since. His friend Wilson, unable to find the gold on his second trip, returned to Odessa and pleaded with Sublet to tell him where it was again, but Sublet was mad and refused to give him any more information. Wilson went back into the mountains, built a small cabin, and spent the rest of his life looking for that find but he never found it again. Then there's the Rufus Stewart story, which I think you'll find interesting. 
Stuart was a hunting guide who hired out the hunting parties in the Trans-Picos area of the Guadalupes. After a long day of deer and pronghorn antelope hunting, and this was back in 88, Stuart and the hunters were relaxing by a campfire when he heard the sound of wagon wheels creaking nearby, and after a call of hello the fire, which is a common way of asking if you could join the campfire, old Ben appeared. Stuart recognized him and invited him to sit for a coffee. Stuart had heard the stories about old Ben finding gold, but he had remained skeptical, pretty much thinking old Ben was a nut. The hunters all came out of their tents to meet Ben, but after a while, tired as they were, they retired, leaving Ben and Rufus to talk over coffee. Sublet told Stuart he was on his way to his mine in the Guadalupes, that this was his last trip. He was getting too old to be traipsing around in those canyons. Then he told Rufus he'd be glad to take him with him but Stuart said he couldn't leave the men that were trusting him to guide them out, and he was worried about the Apaches. Old Ben said that the Apaches would never bother him once they saw him and his company. The next morning Stuart fed Old Ben a big breakfast and rode with him a few miles toward the mountain range. Old Ben led him to the top of what he described as a blue mound west of camp. From there, Sublet, using his telescope, pointed out where the mine was in the distant mountains and then he gave Stuart the directions, shook hands, and rode away. Three days later, Sublet pulled back into the hunter's camp on his way back to Odessa. They asked him to stay for dinner, and after the meal and a passing of the bottle, the hunters bedded down, leaving Sublet and Stuart talking by the campfire as before. At one point, Sublet got up, walked over to his wagon, and grabbed a bag from the back of the wagon. He then spread out a deer hide and poured the contents of the bag on the deerskin. Stuart was stunned by the size of the nuggets, and old Ben explained that the larger ones were easy to pick up, the smaller ones he'd left behind. But just raking your hand through the gravel would reveal another crop of larger nuggets. The next morning, Sublet left for Odessa, and Stuart never saw him again. Stuart tried a number of times to find the gold, but he never could. Ben began converting his gold into cash, according to Midland banker W.E. Connell. Connell noted that whenever Sublet's cash ran short, he would disappear into the Guadalupes for a few weeks and come back with more gold, which he cashed in Odessa and then banked his cash at the Midland Bank. At one point, reportedly, Connell offered Sublet $10,000 for his claim, and Ben just laughed at him, saying he could pick up that much in a day. So Connell and his partner named Grady hired a tracker from Midland named Flanagan to follow old Sublet on his next trip. They hired him full-time, and while waiting, all Flanagan had to do was hang around bars and wait for word from Connell that Sublet's account was running low. When the word did come, Flanagan stayed close to Sublet's home and waited for him to leave, which he did, fully packed for a long wagon trip into the mountains. Flanagan gave him a two-hour head start and then picked up his trail, which wasn't hard to follow due to the wagon wheels, which left easy tracks. Flanagan followed him for three days with no problems, but on the fourth day, Flanagan lost the tracks along the Pecos River. He tried to find them, but they had just disappeared. He checked the other side of the river. No tracks. He made a wide circle. Nothing. Sublet's wagon had vanished into thin air. After a full day of searching, he returned to Odessa and got in touch with Connell. Connell told him that Sublet had returned the day before and deposited another large chunk of money into his account. That's when the theory began that Sublet was stashing his gold in hidden spots between Odessa and the Pecos. Old Ben Sublet was reported to have said, If anybody wants my mine, 
Let him go out and hunt for it like I did. People have laughed at me and called me a fool. The plains of the Pecos and the peaks of the Guadalupes have been my only friends. They are my home. When I die, I want to be buried with the Guadalupes in sight of my grave on one side and the Pecos on the other. I'm going to carry this secret with me so that for years and years after I'm gone, people will remember me and talk about that rich gold mine old man Sublet found. I will leave something behind me to talk about. One evening along in the 80s, a fellow by the name of Lucius Arthur, known better as Frenchie, rode up to Hardesty's ranch, watered, and accepted the invitation to unsaddle and stay all night. While the two men were talking after supper, Frenchie confided to his host that he was trailing two Mexicans who had left Isleta on the Rio Grande the preceding night. He said that he had started to follow them once before, but that his grub and water had played out. He knew that they were bound for a gold mine somewhere in the Guadalupes to the east. Frenchie had been keeping his eye on these Mexicans for a long time. One of them, according to him, belonged to a wealthy old family of rancheros down in Mexico. Perhaps, as he suggested, some Mexican had found out about the gold back in the days when his people from below the Rio Grande used to come up and get salt from the great beds west of the Guadalupe Mountains. Anyway, a member of the rancher's family made a trip to the Guadalupe gold mine each year and brought out a supply of ore. The Mexican now after it had come to Yisleta to meet his brother-in-law and together they had left that place in the dead of the night, not wanting to be followed. After hearing all this, the rancher Hardesty related, I told Frenchy he ought to go better equipped. I told him he might have to stay out for weeks trailing the Mexicans and waiting for them to clear out from the gold mine before he could get into it. Then I offered to stake him with everything he needed. Well, we went in partners, and when he left my place, he had as good an outfit as any man could want and was carrying enough supplies to last two months. Six weeks later, he was back. He had gold quartz to show. According to his story, he had trailed the Mexicans and from a place of concealment had watched them climb a rope ladder into a chasm. He saw them haul up sacks of ore and water for their horses, which were staked on the rim. But he himself had to depend on water so far away that he couldn't keep regular watch. After he had hung around several days, the Mexicans left, and then he made a closer inspection. The chasm, from the way he described it, must have varied in width from 40 to 100 feet and was all of 60 feet deep. Down at the bottom he could see the entrance to a cave with freshly broken rock in front of it. He claimed that he didn't go down into the chasm because he was short on rope for a ladder. Hardesty added, I thought he might have been a little more resourceful, but I said nothing. The chunks of course he brought in had been dropped by the Mexicans, so he said. Frenchy rested up a few days, took a fresh pack of supplies, including enough rope to pick it out a whole caballada, and left again for the Guadalupes. But he never came back. I've never heard of him since, Hardesty said. That's all I know about the gold of the Guadalupes. And that's all we know of Hardesty's story. So far as is known, Sublet never wavered again in his determination to hold fast his secret. When he was dying, his son-in-law, Sid Pitts of Roswell, New Mexico, tried to persuade him to hand over that secret he had clutched so long. Apparently the old man, and he was eighty, started to tell him how to go to the mine. First, he began, you cross the Pecos at... Then he broke off with, Oh, hell, it ain't no use. They'd beat you out of it even if you found it. Evidently, it was not the philanthropic desire to save his kin from the worries of wealth, but his tenacious determination to keep the damned human race from sharing it 
and from learning what he had spent so many years keeping a secret that caused old Sublet to keep silent to the end. Sublet died in 1892. He was buried in Odessa, a little too far away from the Guadalupes to realize his wish for a grave within sight of them. Certainly, however, he did leave behind him something to talk about. In the wide, wide lands of the Pecos, from its mouth far down on the Rio Grande to Old Fort Sumner in New Mexico, there is hardly a town, a squatter's cabin, or a rancher's home in which the story of Sublet's mine hasn't been told. Prospectors by the score have looked for it, and prospectors as well as many men who are not prospectors are still looking for it. As for Sublet's three kids, one has to wonder, did they inherit any of his wealth, or had it all been spent? Chances are there was nothing left in the bank in Midland, and none of the kids knew where the mine was located. In the Leland Loveless book, Lost Mines and Hidden Treasure, Sublet is said to have told his son Rolf, In the southern end of the Guadalupes, on the east side, is a canyon like a chasm, sheer on both sides, accessible only by a rope. It varies in width from 50 to 100 feet, and it's perhaps 75 feet deep. In the wall, near the floor of the canyon, is a shaft, like a cave. In this cave, according to the recollections of Ross Sublet, is the deposit of gold. Sublet did take his young son Rolf to the mine, and later in life Rolf tried to relocate it, but he never could. Rolf, who often went by the name of Ross, said he had gone with his father to the mine as a young boy and was lowered down on the cliff wall by a rope, but he never bothered to remember how they had arrived there. It was just a boyhood event, never repeated. Rolf later said that he believed the gold lay in the Guadalupe Mountains or in the Rustler Hills of Culberson County. Ross was just a little past his ninth birthday when his father took him to it, and that was the only time he saw it. Five years later, when the secretive old prospector lay on his deathbed, Ross, of sufficient age by that time to feel responsibility, tried to get him to describe the way to the gold. Old Ben was a little gentler to him than he was to the son-in-law, but he said, It's too late, Ross. Any description would be useless. You'll just have to go out and hunt it down like I did. To this day, no one has reported finding old Sublet's mine, and many are still trying. We hope you enjoyed the legend of the lost Sublet mine. Stay tuned for our second story, right after these sponsor messages. And now our story. Our second story today is the story of the Black Seminole Scouts in the U.S. Cavalry. The American West from 1860 to around the turn of the century was a much more diverse environment than movies and history books portray. America was growing by leaps and bounds, and the West offered opportunity for all types of people, from all types of backgrounds. It was a violent time, a time when many people lived short lives, but lived them to the fullest. There's a tremendous story to the American West, and there are more untold and unsung legends than known ones. One such legend is that of the Black Seminole Scouts who fought for the U.S. Cavalry in the 1870s during the Indian Wars in the Southwest. Down near the Texas-Mexico border lies a little town called Brackettville, and in this town sits a cemetery called the Seminole Indian Scout Cemetery. The entrance is marked by a high signpost, and it's there that the paved county road ends and a dirt road begins. It was originally called the Negro Seminole Scout Cemetery when it was established in 1872 on the Fort Clark Reservation, and later an association was formed to, quote, preserve and hallow these grounds that these dead may not have died in vain. 
Over 100 gravestones marked the final resting place of five Medal of Honor winners and their comrades and their families and descendants. All the scouts here served with honor in ridding the Texas frontier of hostiles, those being mostly Indians, Apache and Comanche, who were bent on terrorizing settlers and putting an end to migration into what they considered to be their domain. These were not peace-loving Indians who were trying to preserve their way of life. These were fierce warrior nomads bent upon killing, kidnapping, and committing mayhem against any peoples who did not belong to their tribe, and they targeted all colors, races, and creeds. They had angered and alienated many of the tribes in the southwest, and it was men from tribes like the Pawnee, the Arikara, the White Mountain Apache, the Crow, and others that the Indian scouts who served the U.S. cavalry came to fight against. Of the five Medal of Honor winners in the Brackettville Cemetery, four of the Medal of Honor recipients were Seminole Negro Indian scouts, Adam Payne, Isaac Payne, John Ward, and Pompey Factor. The fifth man, Claren Gus Windus, won his Medal of Honor as a soldier in the all-white 6th Cavalry. He later became a deputy sheriff in Kinney County. On New Year's Eve, 1876, Claren Windus killed ex-scout Adam Payne during a botched attempt to arrest him. It's said that Payne was shot in the back with a shotgun, at such close range that his clothing caught on fire. It's almost certain that the other three Medal of Honor winners witnessed this shooting. How these five men's lives came together is a fascinating, unsung story of the American West, and you won't find it in any movies or coffee table books. Most of the black Seminoles were descendants of free Africans or slaves who had joined the Seminole Indians in Florida during the Seminole Wars in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Some had migrated fully into Seminole tribes, and others lived in their own villages, blending their African heritage with Seminole customs, but remaining separate from the Seminole tribe. They were self-governing, but wisely paid a small tithe from their harvest to the Seminole tribe to keep the peace. When the Seminole Wars ended in Florida, a forced migration took place, and over the years the black Seminoles moved with the Seminole tribe to Indian Territory, which is present-day Oklahoma. There, slavers were constantly hounding them, and living conditions were terrible. The Seminole sub-chief Wildcat was gathering a band of Seminoles for a move to Mexico in the early 1850s, and a large group of black Seminoles, under the leadership of John Horse, decided to throw in lots with Wildcat. Mexico had promised them their freedom, a piece of land, and some pay from the Mexican military if they would defend the border against raiding Indians and Texans. It was a better deal than Oklahoma was giving them, so they went. By 1870, the political situation had changed in Mexico, however. Promises weren't kept, and things weren't looking too good for the Muscagos, which is the name the Black Seminoles went by. So when Captain Perry of the U.S. Army came down and offered a return to Indian territory in the U.S., and paid jobs with the U.S. Cavalry fighting Apaches. That sounded pretty good. They crossed the Rio Grande on July 4, 1870, and awaited assignment to their new land at Fort Duncan, and while they waited, they asked if they could scout, and the U.S. Cavalry signed them up. They were mustered into the U.S. Cavalry as Seminole Negro Indian Scouts on August 16th of that year. These men turned out to be excellent warriors. They were fiercely independent and never subjugated. They were nobody's slaves, and you didn't mess with them. Best of all for the cavalry, they hated Lipan Apaches and Comanches because they had raided their villages in Mexico and carried off horses and women. It was not a match made in heaven, for the U.S. cavalry used a lot of rules that were foreign to these guys, 
and they spent a lot of time training them how to fight Indians, and the men training those Indians had very little experience. To kill an Indian, you had to think like an Indian. Also, they and their families were getting jacked around by the decision-makers with regard to property ownership. Land was being given to Indians in Oklahoma, but the higher-ups were saying that since the Muscogee were black, they couldn't own Indian land. Fortunately, they had seen Oklahoma and hadn't left with great memories. On the other hand, life around Fort Duncan was no joyride either for their starving families, and the land was too desert-like to farm on. A new ruling was put in place saying that only the scouts could receive food rations. Their families got nothing. The army used contractors for their beef and food, but the Indians didn't receive anything. They couldn't farm, they couldn't buy food, and they were starving. All they could do was steal a stray cow now and then beat a village of 200. And if they got caught, they were charged with theft and placed in irons. In March of 1873, a bright spot appeared on their horizon in the name of Lieutenant John Lapham Bullis. He was a fighting Quaker who had commanded black troops during the Civil War, and he was immediately able to see the scouts' value as trackers and fighters. He was cut from the same cloth as they, and could go for days on little to no rations, and he fought just as well. In eight years of frontier warfare, they didn't lose a single man under Bullis's command, yet they were involved in some of the toughest Indian fighting in Western history. Now that you've got the background, I'll relate the stories of the Medal of Honor winners. First, there was Adam Payne. Payne was among those black Seminoles who returned to the United States to become a scout for Fort Duncan, Texas, on November 12, 1873. He was the least experienced of the black Seminole scouts acquired for the base and had difficulty conforming to military regulations. He was six feet tall, weighed about 200 pounds, and refused to wear a regulation uniform, opting instead to wear a leather headpiece with buffalo horns. He fought in many engagements, including Kickapoo Springs, Tule Canyon, Palo Duro Canyon, Double Lakes, and Laguna Tahanka. During a battle at Quitaque Peak, Payne defended himself and four other scouts against several small bands of Comanche. The group awoke on the morning of September 26, 1874, to see some ten Comanches driving a herd of forty horses over a rise. They then noticed several smaller groups of Comanches and realized they were vastly outnumbered. While the scouts fled from a group of seven attacking Comanches, Payne's horse was shot out from under him. Though he jumped clear, he wound up standing alone before the charging attackers. Using his saddle for cover, Payne shot the rider of the lead horse, which continued its gallop towards him without its rider. He then mounted the charging, riderless horse and made his escape. Thanks to his efforts during the engagement, all of the scouts survived and the cavalry was able to track many of the attacking Comanche down. Payne was awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for the above actions on October 13, 1875, although it is unclear whether we actually received a medal. He was discharged from the Army at Fort Clark, Texas on February 19, 1875, and worked as a teamster for the U.S. Quartermaster Department at Fort Brown, Texas. The commanding officer of Fort Clark said of Payne, This man has, I believe, more cool daring than any scout I've ever known. On Christmas Eve, 1875, Payne was involved in a heated argument with a cavalry trooper, which ended with Payne stabbing the trooper in the heart. He fled to Mexico and the shelter of the black Seminole community still located there before Mexican authorities apprehended and imprisoned him. Due to overcrowding in the local jail, Payne was kept in a bullfighting stadium. He escaped from the stadium after it was damaged by a tropical storm. He traveled with the cattle thief, Frank Enoch, 
and crossed the border again to seek refuge in the black Seminole community of Brackettville, Texas, near Fort Clark. The black Seminole there had been abandoned by the U.S. Army, which, as previously stated, took back its promise to feed the families of scouts employed by the fort and refused to give them land. Near starving, the community preyed on stray, feral cattle for food. Though the cattle were not owned, the community of Brackettville regarded the Seminole as thieves. The Kinney County Inspector of Hides and Animals, James B. Ballantyne, charged the Seminole community a tax of $40 for the deaths of four cows. The tax was paid by longtime supporter and advocate of the Black Seminoles, Lieutenant John Bullis. On the night of December 31, 1876, an informant told Kinney County authorities that Enoch, Payne, and other fugitives, including Medal of Honor recipient Isaac Payne, would be present at a New Year's celebration in the Seminole Village. Sheriff L.C. Crowell, along with Deputy Claren Windus and deputized civilian James Thomas, made plans to capture the fugitives during the festivities. Claren Augustus Windus had also received the Congressional Medal of Honor while serving with James B. Dosher in North Texas, four years after serving a term of hard labor for desertion and theft. Windus eventually married the daughter of James B. Ballantyne and held various positions of authority in Kinney County. Former scout and trumpeter Isaac Payne was wanted for stealing a horse from Deputy Windus. The three men entered the village just before midnight and assembled the fugitives in a line to be shackled. Accounts vary as to what happened next, but it is certain that Windus shot Adam Payne and Frank Enoch with his double-barreled shotgun at close range, so close that Payne's clothing caught on fire. Payne was killed instantly, and Enoch received a mortal wound. Other former Army scouts present attacked Windus and wrestled with him, which gave Isaac Payne and another former scout turned fugitive time to escape. Windus's shooting of Adam Payne is the only known incident of a Medal of Honor recipient killing another Medal of Honor recipient. Payne was buried in what would become the Seminole Negro Indian Scout Cemetery in Brackettville on New Year's Day of 1877. Where Adam Payne had earned his medal for his gallantry in the Red River War, Another black Seminole who went by the same name Payne, Isaac Payne, along with scouts John Ward and Pompey Factor, earned theirs during the fight at Eagle's Nest Crossing on the Pecos River. On April 25, 1875, Lieutenant John Bullis, 24th Infantry, and three Seminole Negro scouts, Sergeant John Ward and Privates Isaac Payne and Pompey Factor, were trailing a raiding party who had about 75 stolen horses. On the west side of the Pecos River, at a place called Eagle's Nest, the pursuers discovered about 30 Comanches preparing to herd the stolen stock across the river. Bullis and the scouts dismounted and crept through the brush until they were about 75 yards away, and at that point they opened fire. In a 45-minute fight, Bullis captured and lost the horses twice. His men killed three Comanches and wounded one, but the firepower of their single-shot Springfields was no match for the Indians' Winchesters and the four of them made a dash for their horses. The three scouts made it, but Bullis was not with them. He had been cut off from his horse. Shouting that they must not leave their lieutenant behind, Ward mounted up and went back for Bullis, while Payne and Factor put out as much covering fire as they could. Swinging Bullis onto his horse, Ward caught a bullet in his carbine sling, then another shattered the gun stock. All four of them got away safely, and the three scouts won medals of honor. They were in constant battles with Indians during their years of service, and Indians weren't the only enemies the scouts were fighting. They fought in and out of Mexico, at Coahuila, at Palo Duro Canyon, and elsewhere, 
under Commanders Bullis and Mackenzie, and around Brackenville, Texas, they fought with outlaw King Fisher's gang, with whom they shared a mutual hatred. And white citizens around Brackenville and Fort Clark began to agitate for the scouts' removal so they could take their property. When Bullis was transferred to Indian Territory in 1882, that pretty much broke the backs of the scouts. The military cut off all aid to their families and refused to give them title to their land, despite petitions from Phil Sheridan and other notables to give them the land they'd been promised. By August of 1912, after a sterling record of military service, the last 16 black Seminole scouts were mustered out of the U.S. Cavalry, following their families, who had already, due to starvation, moved to Del Rio, Eagle Pass, and other border towns where they were working as ranch hands, laborers, and domestic servants. The Black Seminole Scouts' record of service, their sacrifice, their deeds of incredible courage, all of which helped to win the Wild West, became footnotes in Western history. Every September, relatives and others who know their story come to the Brackenville Cemetery to pay their respects to the Black Seminole Scouts who helped to forge a nation. We can now add our 1,001 listeners to the list of people who know their stories and will want to share it with others. We always appreciate reviews, and we have a few recent reviews we'd like to share with you. The first one, five stars. The best podcast ever. I'm 11, and I cannot wait for Sunday, even though there is school the next day. Down from Cool Dude, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, glorifies settler colonialism. Check your sources. This perpetuates a false narrative. That one from Yo Teach One at Apple Podcast U.S. And Yo Teach One, we do a pretty good job of researching here, and I'm not sure what episode you were even referring to. But if you get a chance, please respond to us somewhere other than in podcast reviews and let us know who your favorite Marxist professors were. You can also add a few lines if you'd like to tell us what your ancestors did to settle this country and make it a decent place to live for those who followed. We would appreciate that. And this one. Great again, five stars. It's good to hear another good old story, told without foul language and twisted revisionist history. Down from Wolfie Wolf, Apple Podcast, U.S. And compelling, five stars. Just the kind of content I wanted. RN Needs Laughs, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, educational and interesting, five stars. This podcast has a lot of facts, mysteries, and ideas that are little known. And I would recommend this to a lot of young people who I think should hear this over the secular version of it. Down from George Lovecraft, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you so much for taking the time to write us these reviews. We appreciate them very much. This is your host, John Hagedorn. We'll return with a brand new episode next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.